Good morning, City Church. My name is Monica Erton, and I serve on the events team and the communion and prayer team, and I'll be reading the scripture for this morning. John 4, 1 through 30. Now when, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria, Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me for a drink, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. The well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Verses 39 through 42. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Monica. She deserves some love because that was a lot of scripture to read. All right. Give it up for her. When I sent her the text, I was like, I'm sorry. <laughs> There's really no way to break this up. 
Good morning, everyone. Today we are continuing our series, Scandalous Grace. We are looking at these beautiful snapshots that we find in scripture of extravagant, undeserving, irreverent displays of love and grace. This is what you might call or consider to be a feel-good series. These stories, most of them familiar, are the ones that stir up all of those mushy feelings and we can set back and enjoy the story and take in the beauty. But here's the rub. Most of us are good with these stories because we're familiar with them and we can kind of keep the gritty reality of them at a distance. And our challenge for this series and my challenge for you today and in the remaining weeks of this series is for us to really place ourselves inside the story to understand the context of the story and let the Spirit do His work in revealing the places in our life where grace is difficult for us to swallow. Most of us are good with grace up until a certain point and a certain mark, and then I need you to prove yourself worthy of this grace. Some of us are good with being the ones to dispense the grace, but we pride ourselves on being the one who never needs it. Some of us may feel like I know in my head that I am unconditionally loved by the Father, but I can't imagine how that can possibly be true. How can I not only be forgiven and loved, but also used to further his kingdom? This is the narrative of our story today. We have this woman who has so many things stacked against her, and yet we see Jesus in pursuit. We're going to journey this story and break down three phases of this encounter with Jesus. Invitation, revelation, and proclamation. What can we learn from these three phases and how does this ring true in our own encounters with Jesus? But first, let's get us to the encounter. As Monica has already read, we are in John 4 today and there's a very interesting first line as we enter into this story. It says this, Jesus had to go through Samaria. Now it's interesting to read God incarnate, God in flesh had to do something because in reality, he doesn't have to do anything. There was something compelling Jesus to go make this specific journey through Samaria and it wasn't necessarily geography. A quick refresh on the geography of the land. In ancient Israel, Judea was to the south and Galilee was to the north and the region in between was Samaria. If you've ever heard a sermon on the woman at the well, which I would imagine the majority of the people in this room probably have, you know that the direct route to get through Samaria was not the route that most Jews preferred. It was definitely faster, but most religious Jews would add even up to a week on their, to their journey on foot just to avoid going through Samaria. Why is this? What's all the fuss about Jews and Samaritans? I think it's easy to hear this, and especially with a familiar story like this one, we can just automatically pop in whatever conflict situation may be in our minds and equate it to that. But I would dare say that this conflict runs deeper than what you have pictured in your mind. Jews and Samaritans were fundamentally opposed as people. The relationship between these people groups was intense. The division was raw and there was centuries of hate and violence that had been built up by the time we get to our narrative for today, our text for today. Racial and ethnic divides and religious conflicts the perfect storm for some really nasty stuff. 
Samaritans were the descendants of Jews that had intermarried with the Assyrians, their brutal colonizers. And as these Samaritans intermarried with the Assyrians, they began adopting their idols. And then the Samaritans were then alienated from the people of God. And in response, the Samaritans adopted their own holy scriptures and their own places of worship. And let's not forget, Jesus was a first century Jew. He had every right and every reason to avoid going through Samaria. And on top of that, even more right and reason to avoid coming in contact with anyone in Samaria and even more so a woman. Any respectable man, let alone a rabbi, would never have been caught having a one-on-one conversation with a woman in public. I read that some men even took this so far that they would not even speak to their wives one-on-one in public. Nice, right? Add on that, that she was a woman with a history and it seems on the surface, not the best reputation or connections. This encounter that we find in our text today is so culturally inappropriate that it's really hard to get the full picture. It's hard to convey this morning. And on the flip side, the woman had every right and every reason to avoid him in return. He was a foreigner on her land and he was part of a people group who had historically marginalized and depressed her people. But in the midst of all of this, or maybe better put, in the face of all of this, what we find here is the longest private interaction recorded in the New Testament. It was not only unheard of, unexpected, it was scandalous. How great a love that would go to that kind of distance. Not geographically, but culturally, wading through generations of hate and anger. And even in the first line of scripture, as if to say, before you get any notion of coincidence in your mind, Jesus didn't just happen to be there that day. And this woman didn't just happen to be at the same place at the same time and it's like, oh, well, we're here, let's have a conversation. No, Jesus had to go through Samaria. He was in pursuit of her specifically. How reckless is the love of God that pursues us. And that's how I want to challenge us today to take in the rest of this story through the lens of pursuit. Okay, now let's dive into their encounter. Number one, invitation. The first exchange that we see is Jesus asking her for a drink. Notice the approaching posture of Jesus is one of humility. He's tired from the journey, his disciples are gone getting food and he asks her for a drink. Not only was it unheard of for him to make this specific request, it was unheard of for him to make any request at all. First thing, as we said, this woman was ethnically different. She was a different gender and she was also religiously other as well, which means that she was spiritually unclean. And to take anything out of the hands of this woman was to risk a ritual defilement as someone's impurity was thought to pass through their hands and into whatever it is that we, they were coming in contact with. But we see Jesus approach her with humility and make this request. And last layer of context for our story is for the woman. Side note, I really wish that she had a name um, because calling her the woman all day um, is just a little bit annoying and it also feels a little bit demeaning 
but y'all know I'm not about to take the story there. So just bear with me and the woman it is because that's what we've been given. Um, last layer of context, it was about noon, which on the surface may seem just like a little nugget added to the story for some color so that you can get kind of the setting, but this is significant. We're in the Middle East here. It's hot at noon. Most of the women would come to draw water from the well in the coolest parts of the day, early in the morning or late in the evening. This was not only a chore that had to be done, but it was also a big part of the culture and a time for women to come together and to socialize, to talk about their lives, to complain about things, just to chat as we do. This was so important for building a web of relationships. And here we find this woman at the well at this time of day when she was least likely to run into anyone else. And so she was probably definitely the most surprised by this encounter. She had intentionally taken on this grueling task in the heat of the day, only to avoid what inevitably must have happened every time she came to the well and there was more people there than just her. She was willing to endure the sweat and the work to avoid what happens when she's in the company of others only to find herself in the company of a Jewish man who unexpectedly addresses her. Where she went to get away from it all, where she went to hide, Jesus is there and he asks her for a drink. And Jesus, in addressing and engaging with this woman, he is breaking every boundary. He's breaking every rule. His pursuit of us is restless and it may even seem reckless to some, but here is what we see and what we know by this encounter. There is no cultural barrier or distance too far for God to find you and invite you into true life. There is no cultural barrier or distance too far for God to find you and invite you into true life. And after he addresses her, she's like, uh, what now? How are you going, a Jew, gonna ask me for a drink? She's telling him what he already knows. Like, do you realize, do you understand how wrong this is, what is happening here? And in verse 10, Jesus answers her and said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank it for himself as did his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to be coming back here to draw water. So here we find the invitation. This invitation was to living water, a water that if and when you drink it, you will never thirst again, never Thirst, that's quite the claim. That's quite the promise. Jesus is using a physical reality here to address a spiritual reality, which we see Jesus do so much in the New Testament. Living water was a, a common term at the time and it was, it was in reference to moving water. Water that is living and active, not water that is stagnant like water from a spring or a river. 
So her response is one of practicality. Like, you're not from around here. Are you trying to tell me that there is a water source that we don't know of? First of all, you don't have um, any jars, so how are you gonna get water from this well? But you're, you're, not, you're telling me that you know where water is that we don't know? This is the desert. Nothing is more valuable than water. And for Jesus and the Jewish people, living water was also significant as the only water that could be used for ritual purification as in making unclean worshipers pure. So much of the imagery around living water in the Bible is around the promises of God to satisfy the human heart. Invitation after invitation to come and drink from the well that never runs dry. An invitation to quench our thirst, drawing water from springs of salvation. Revelation 22 says, anyone who is thirsty, let him come and drink of the water of life. Just a few chapters later from our text today in John 7, we can let scripture interpret scripture and get a direct answer for what he is referencing here when he talks about living water. John 7, 37 through 39. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this, he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. So Jesus here connects this image of living water with Holy Spirit. This image of living water evokes a picture of satisfaction in a dry and weary land and purification of that which is unclean. Satisfaction and purification. And this offer, this invitation that Jesus is making for satisfaction and purification is made to a woman. And not only a woman, an outsider from his community and from hers. He is offering her something that would satisfy and make her new. Jesus is inviting her into something in her mind and in the minds of everyone else in their culture would have only been offered to the Jews. She obviously isn't connecting all of these dots here that we were just talking about in the moment of this invitation, but she is for sure intrigued. She's like, uh, yeah. Give me some of this water so that I'll never thirst again and I don't have to come back to this place and endure what I endure when I come to this place. Please give me this living water. And then we move into the next phase of our encounter. Number two, revelation. Jesus then says to her, go and call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she said. Jesus said, you are right, when you have no husband, the fact is that you've had five husbands and the one you are now with is not your husband. What you have said is true. So the story takes a seemingly sharp turn here. He invites her to take of living water and then Jesus reveals the thing that she came to the well at noon to hide. Five husbands and the one that she is now with is not her husband. Now let's pause for a second. For me growing up in the church, hearing this story, the instant implication is that this is a promiscuous woman. Like Jesus is calling her to the carpet right here. And if they were on like a trashy talk show, the crowd would be like, oh, he did it now. (laughs) But as we all know, this is not who Jesus is. We instantly place it and we read it in the context of our culture. And frankly, we have been given it through a male and even more specifically in my context, a white male lens. 
But this is not the context of our story today. Given the culture, this picture of her was not likely. We're not given the details here, so we're left to infer this is not gospel truth, but here's what we know. At the time, in most cultures, the woman had no right to issue a divorce. Only a man could divorce his spouse. So a few other scenarios outside of the promiscuous woman narrative is that she was widowed five different times, having her heart broken time and time again, or she was left and divorced time and time again, most likely maybe a defect in her infertility or something that made her an unsuitable partner, an unsuitable spouse. Five times married and divorced. No matter the circumstances, we can know that it was filled with pain and shame. And we can know just based on how life goes that it could not have possibly been all of her blame to carry. And in her time, a woman had no social safety net outside of a man, a husband or a father. And so the the narrative that she could have just pursued life as a single woman was not a reality for her at the time. The automatic assumption is that she had the world in front of her and that she chose time and time again to throw her life in the trash. Did she make mistakes? I'm sure of it. Did she have much of a choice in a lot of what is revealed here in this interaction? I'm sure she didn't. We can't address her perceived actions without addressing the power structures that she was living in and under at the time. So I may not know this person's name, but I'm gonna go to bat for my girl here because what I do know is that she was incredibly vulnerable and full of shame. In this interaction, Jesus is not calling her to the carpet. He's revealing to her that he knows her. He knows all of her, not only the parts that she wants him to know, he knows all of her. He saw and sees the darkest moments of her life. We see a similar interaction, a different different scenario, but a similar interaction with Jesus and Nathaniel. Nathaniel, upon first hearing about Jesus, he's like, he's from Nazareth? What good can come from Nazareth? But in their first meeting, Jesus tells Nathanael, I saw you under the fig tree. And instantly, this knowing that really isn't explained, this knowing between the two of them, it sealed the deal. Jesus is telling Nathanael, I know you, I see you when no one else sees you. And Jesus, in the same way that he does with Nathanael, says, I see you. Jesus says, I see the thing that you are most ashamed of. I see the trauma and the pain and the bad choices. I see all of those things and I'm still here. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not leaving. I see all of those things and I still had to come here to make this invitation to you. I had to come to this place to meet you and say, I see you, come and follow me. He doesn't treat her like an outsider or an outcast. He treats her like a disciple. And then in true Jesus fashion, full of grace and truth says, I see you, all of you, the pain of your marriages and how you are in the middle of a situation right now that will not satisfy. The man that you are with is not your husband. Jesus sees our pain and loves us enough to call us out of our current sin, which makes promises that it can never keep. 
So often we tangle up and reorder our desires in such a way that Jesus has to confront the false wells in order to expose our need for living water. In his mercy, he confronts the sin that acts as a barrier to the living water that we need because we keep running back time and time again to satisfy, to quench our thirst. I need a little bit more because I keep being thirsty and I keep having to go back. And he has to expose those things to say, that's not gonna do it. Jesus knows that what she has been drinking from for satisfaction, for comfort, for mourning, for love and acceptance, whatever it is, it is clearly leaving her searching. The water that she is drinking isn't working and in his mercy, he confronts and reveals the truth and her brokenness to expose the lie that those wells will ever produce anything but death. This is what love is. This is what love does, it calls us out. In love, Jesus confronts us, but he does not condemn us. He confronts us, but he does not condemn us. And in this exchange, not only is all revealed here about this woman, this revelation about this woman and her past and who she is, but all is revealed about Jesus and all of who he is. Verse 19, sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know, we worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. He's saying, yes, you have it right. That is how it has been, but I'm here to usher in a new covenant. It has been about where you worship and how you were born, but it's about to be about the heart. It's about to be about the heart. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one that's speaking to you, I am he. Talk about a revelation. This is the revelation. The scandalous nature of this encounter just goes to the next level as this woman is the very first person that Jesus reveals himself to as Messiah. After centuries of expectation, after 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and New Testament, this outcast, this outsider, this woman is the first person to hear the good news in the words, I am he. The one you're talking about, the one you have been waiting for, the Messiah, that's me. The Messiah is standing in front of her. The reality has been revealed and now she has a choice because she knew the script, she knew the story, she knew that she was an outsider, that she was not a part of this people, this family of God, yet here is the one, here standing in front of me, here is the one, and he knows everything about me. He knows my past, he knows my present unfortunate situation, and here he is making this invitation of me. The Messiah is standing in front of her, and she had a choice, and she recognized him for who he was. She saw and believed and was transformed by this seemingly simple yet scandalous encounter with him. 
She recognized him for who he was and she believed. Because it's not about where you're coming from or what you have done on the road to get you there. The only thing that matters is your response when you come face to face with Jesus. The only thing that matters is our response when we come face to face with Jesus. And her response was a fiery faith. Everything I've known up until now would tell me otherwise. Everything I've known would tell me that I would be left out. Everything that I have known would tell me otherwise, but I believe you. I believe that you are the Messiah. I trust in you and I have been changed and transformed and made new and I cannot now contain what is inside of me, which ushers us into point number three, proclamation. The woman takes off. She's caught up in the moment. She leaves her jars, whatever, I came here for something and I got something else, I'm leaving the jars and I'm going back into the town that at the beginning of the day I was hiding from and I was avoiding. She runs back into the town and bears witness to what she has seen and what she has heard and what she has experienced from this man named Jesus. Our girl is now an evangelist, all right? Come and see the man who told me everything I have ever done. I love this so much. This is how you know that you have encountered grace and truth personified. She's no longer ashamed of who she is, of what she's done, of her story, of her past. She runs in and says, come and see the man that's told me everything that I have ever done. She can proclaim with boldness because she realizes her past does not disqualify her. It actually uniquely qualifies her to bear witness to the grace of God. Come and see this man that told me everything I have ever done. It didn't disqualify her, it qualified her. Jesus has this pattern of picking the least credible witness to bear the most incredible news, which sidebar just so happens to contain that list, just so happens to contain a lot of powerful women. I don't do a lot of we are women hear us roar messages, but if when I have the chance, let's do it, all right? Jesus does this again with carrying the news of his resurrection. He appears for the very first time, not to one of his 11 disciples, but to Mary Magdalene. A formerly demon-possessed woman was the first to hear and share the good news of the gospel. In a time when a woman's testimony wouldn't even hold up in the court of law, Jesus said, I choose you. I commission and call you to share my story, the story. And so our woman that we first meet at the well went to the people, the people who had outcast her and she shared about Jesus and her testimony and they came to believe through her testimony and invited Jesus to come and he and his disciples came and stayed with them for two days. I feel like this is a part of the story that gets overlooked as well. So this one-on-one encounter spills over into a two-day tearing down of all that any of them had ever known previously up until this point. Because scandalous grace is contagious. During those two days, Jesus and his disciples would have engaged with the Samaritans on an intimate level, eating, talking, living together, despite massive cultural divides, which all led to their public 
proclamation. They said, we no longer believe just because of what you have said. Now we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this man is really the savior of the world. The savior of the world. Not just the Jews, the whole world. Every tribe and every tongue. They came to believe that now they were included in this saving and life-changing work of God. The scandalous grace of Jesus and unexpected inclusion of one woman was the spark that lit the flame of revival in a whole town. The good news of the gospel, the scandalous grace of Jesus, it crosses boundaries and breaks barriers. And this draws people in, in a magnetic type of way because the kingdom doesn't silo itself off into different groups of people. It invites everyone under the umbrella of the gospel and says, this is enough to unify us. This is enough to bring us together, despite our differences, in the face of those differences. And we see this beautifully put on display here at the end of our story. All because of one woman's faith to believe and to proclaim the good news. But as we end today, I wanna bring us all the way back to where we started as I was praying over this message and preparing over it, I could not get past the beauty of the pursuit of Jesus. And I just felt so strongly that there was many of us that were gonna be here this morning that need to be reminded of that because let us not forget how this all started. Jesus had to go to Samaria. This all started with his pursuit. Jesus is pursuing you. He is in pursuit of you. He is pursuing your heart. At the end of Psalm 23, it says, his goodness and his mercy follows us all the days of our lives. I love this picture. In one translation, it actually says, he chases after us. And this picture that we have is one that my only response, he's chasing after me. My only response is to stop, to stop and to turn around because he's chasing after me. And I want you to get this picture of Jesus in your mind today. He's pursuing you. He's relentless in his pursuit of you. He is compelled to search you out and invite you into life with him. And with this invitation may come with a confrontation. And so I wanna ask you this morning to reflect, what wells am I searching out? Am I going to for satisfaction? In just a few weeks, we're gonna be entering into the time of Lent. And Lent is a difficult time in the church calendar. It's meant to be that way. We're journeying with Jesus to the cross. But I think Lent is such a beautiful time for those wells to be exposed. For us to really in investigate in our own lives, where am I running to for comfort? Where am I running to when my thoughts are taking over? How do I silence those? What am I running to for satisfaction, for happiness, to scratch this itch? What wells am I going to? Because eternity is written on our hearts and nothing else will satisfy like He will satisfy. Everything else falls short. All other wells make promises that they cannot keep. 
but Jesus, he is the source of living water that never runs dry and his promise he always keeps. He is the savior of the world in pursuit of you. Do you see him for who he is? Stand with me this morning. those moments I've encountered, just like our woman from the story, all that is needed from us, it's a stop. All that is needed from us is faith to see him for who he is. I want to say one of the statements that I said earlier, and I just want you to take it in this morning with this lens of pursuit. Maybe close your eyes for a moment. It's not about where you're coming from. what you have done on the road to get you there. The only thing that matters is your response when you come face to face with Jesus. The only thing that matters is your response when you encounter Jesus. Give us a picture of your love today. God, I pray that this text, this message, this story, this testimony of this woman today would be that. It would be a display of your love and your grace and your pursuit. And that if there is anyone in this room right now that thinks they're disqualified, I pray, God, that your spirit would move on their heart right now to tell them, to show them that you are in pursuit of them, that you see them, that you know them, you know them better than they know themselves. And you're still here. You're still pursuing us. You're still chasing after us all the days of our life. God, we surrender to that today. beautiful you're pursuing love
washes over us. We see this price that was paid. We remember this price that was paid. Jesus' name, amen. 
guys so much for joining us this morning. What a beautiful day. A few reminders. If you are a guest here, first-time guest, we'd love to meet you. If you want to make your way across the lobby there in our welcome room, our pastor would love to meet you and give you a free gift. Next Sunday, our last Sunday in the ballet. I mean, come on, guys. Yes. Let's be here all together to worship together in this room one final time. All right, let's end the way we do every week. Wherever you are, be the gospel. Thank you. I was like getting...